In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts, Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As I noted um, at the end of Mass, there is a definite structure to Lent. And it's not merely a thematic structure. It's not merely a structure of the calendar. It's a spiritual structure. And the more we can appreciate that, the more opportunity we have to enter into the fullness of the holy season. And so let's begin with it, because as we've been noting in our lead up to Lent, we have certain common associations that if we've been connected to the church for any length of time, just automatically come to us. Lent is the time of year where we give something up. We use certain words a lot, like fasting and penance. We associate Lent with certain devotions, for example, the Stations of the Cross, And that is all good and helpful, but there are times where we wonder how all of these pieces fit together. What's the relationship of the ashes to the Stations of the Cross? What's the relationship between ashes and fasting? How how does fasting connect with the Stations of the Cross? And so what we want to do is back up a little bit and look at the season as a whole. Because as is often the case, you know, the old proverb is very true. Sometimes you can't see the forest because of the trees. Sometimes we get so caught up in the details of specific things that we're doing that we miss the overall framework within which they are set and which gives them meaning. One of the most common associations of Lent is that it is 40 days. Hence the famous hymn, These 40 Days of Lent. And that is and isn't true at the same time. If you chop out the Sundays, you have 40 days. But we call them the Sundays of Lent. And so Lent actually has more than 40 days total. And that's instructive right away when we recognize it. Lent, in a sense, consists of an introductory period and then the longer period determined by the Sundays, which likewise can be divided into sections. The introductory period begins on Ash Wednesday. It includes the next three days. And so Ash Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then there's a bit of a shift with the first Sunday of Lent. We noted earlier at Mass that uh, in over these first four days then of Lent, what we are doing is we are allowing the church to stage us into the heart of the season, which is honestly a bit refreshing because many of us, even if we've been able to plan out how we're going to observe the holy season, still need a couple days to get up and running. And the first few days of Lent are at the service of talking about basic dispositions and practices 
that will carry us through and sustain us during the holy season. But note, Lent is not reducible to those dispositions and practices. Rather, these dispositions and practices are at the service of helping us enter into the fullness of what lies ahead. So let's talk about how all these pieces fit together. And the first is this. The beginning is connected to the end, and we can't ever forget that. In real life, that's often the way things work in human activity. I don't simply begin things randomly. I often begin them for a reason, a goal, an end. And because I am moving someplace, I am going to take the first step, which is the beginning, in that direction. And so note, where I am going determines my first step. Where I am going, what I am looking to do, determines how I begin. And so the goal or the reason is what determines the beginning. And so Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season, the beginning of the time, is the beginning of a broader movement that is going someplace. Where are we going? We are going to the celebration of the Holy Days, which culminates in the celebration of Easter. That is where we are going. Easter is the great Holy Day. Easter is the original Holy Day. And Lent exists to prepare the Christian faithful for the celebration of Easter. And that means everything about Lent is oriented to getting us there. And so all of a sudden, we see something. The Stations of the Cross are related to getting us to Easter. The fasting, the prayer, the ashes are all at the service of getting us to Easter in a way that finds us prepared to meet the mystery, embrace the mystery, celebrate the mystery, and live the mystery. And when we speak then of moving the Christian faithful along this way, there are two parallel tracks, in a sense, two tiers of the Christian faithful. And that is, there are those who are already full members of the church. Those who have been baptized, those who have received their sacraments, those who have been living the life of Christian discipleship, however imperfectly, for some time. And those as well who are preparing to enter Christian life fully for the first time. And so note the parallel. Because the privileged day from the ancient time is the great day on which believers are received fully into the church is on the greatest of days, the celebration of Easter. And on that day where we celebrate the victory of Jesus Christ, the church has long privileged that celebration as the moment in which those who have been preparing to embrace the fullness of Christian life are received by means of their immersion into Christ through baptism, their rising to be chrismated in the sacrament of confirmation, 
and they're coming to the table of the altar to feast on the body and blood of Christ for the first time. So the movement of Lent is ordered, on the one hand, to that final preparation of those who are to embrace the fullness of Christian life, and it is geared to call all of the already baptized to reinvigorate their living of the fullness of Christian life. Note that wonderful parallel then. And when we recognize that, we realize that those of us who have been members of the church for quite some time can often and easily take our membership for granted. And the presence of those who are seeking to join us reminds us that there are many who long for the gifts we have already received and often fail to appreciate. And so even as we accompany them and strengthen them and communicate to them the call of conversion, we recognize that that call is not simply to them. It's not to the world at large. It's also a call that must sound in our hearts. So it's marvelous in the one hand then. We have, the, we have the neophytes who have been preparing, who come forward with their interest in the sacraments, and they are marked with the, the ashes of a very real repentance. The turning away from sin that allows one to embrace the gospel for the very first time. But even as they stand beside us, we are conscious of how weak our own embrace of the gospel often is. And so we likewise put the ashes of repentance on our heads, moving to the direction of renewing and deepening our belonging to Christ. And so Ash Wednesday is connected to Easter intrinsically. It's the beginning of the movement by which we go there. And so note now, again, let's stick with the beginning and the end, because symbolically there's a connection too. Baptism is a sacrament that is celebrated by means of water, as we know, correct? Water is necessary for life. At the risk of sounding silly, water is wet. We can drink it. It is good for us. It is life-giving and life-sustaining. Ashes, on the other hand, are dry. Ashes, on the other hand, are not good for drinking not good for eating. Ashes do nothing to sustain life. Ashes are what remains when there is no life left. Note the contrast, note the opposite. On Ash Wednesday, we receive ashes on our foreheads as a reminder of the futility to which sin has reduced us. As a reminder of the fact that without the help of God, all we are is dust, which in the end will collapse of its own weight and go nowhere. But we also recognize we're more than that too, with God. And so note this recognition of a certain futility about us, of a limit about us, of our failure. We're marked with the ashes, however, that mark is at the surface of setting us on a movement which culminates in Easter around a fountain of water. 
whether there are members of the church, whether there are members to be baptized or not, the celebration of Easter necessarily involves water in the church. And again, note the contrast. Ashes at the beginning, water at the end. One of the formulas for the imposition of ashes is the charge, turn away from sin and believe in the gospel. As those words are being said, the ashes are placed on our heads and we are given our task. What are the six weeks of Lent about? Turning away from sin to fully believe in the gospel. After Lent is over and we move through the celebration of the holy days, where is the church? Around a fount of water which is blessed. And after the water is blessed, the congregation stands, say at the Easter vigil, with lighted candles in their hands. A reminder of the light that is ours through the resurrection of Christ, a reminder of the light of new life that we've received in baptism. We stand and we hold those lights. The water has been blessed, and what do we do? We declare that we are committed to turning away from sin and believing in the gospel. Because on the occasion of Easter every year, the church renews its baptismal promises. Whether there are members to be new members to be baptized or not, the entire body of Christ stands all the individual voices adding up together into one voice that answers, I do, to the question, do you reject Satan and sin? I do, to the question of, do you believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And having said that I do, I do reject sin, and I do believe in the gospel, what happens next? The ministers go through the church with buckets and they get you wet. And the same heads that receive the ashes on Wednesday, the dry, dead, lifeless, useless ashes are sprinkled with the life-giving water of the sacramental fountain of the church. Note how marvelous that is. Note how the beginning and the end are necessarily connected. Everything in between is about getting us there. And so all of the practices connected to Lent are also at the service of getting us there, to that moment where we stand together. We recommit ourselves to Christian life. We receive the blessing of the font. We who admitted our failure and our need at the beginning stand renewed and refreshed in the victory of Christ, in his light, at the end. It is a marvelous, marvelous relationship which is so easy to miss because Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday are six weeks apart. And if you're like me, I can barely remember what I did yesterday or two days ago. Um, and so looking, being able to step back and look across the whole season and see how the pieces fit 
at least that now allows me a chance to orient myself and navigate myself. As we move then out of the initial period of Lent, which again is focused on the basic elements of Lent, now is the time, is the great message of Ash Wednesday. Why? Because the human heart likes to defer things to later, doesn't it? Even sometimes the best of things, well, I'm just not ready for it today. I know it's really good, I know it's really important, and I'll get to it. And we keep saying tomorrow, and as the old saying goes, tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow never comes, and so Ash Wednesday begins with the insistence, today is the day of salvation, now is the acceptable time. And if it's today and if it's now, it means I've got to move. I've got to do something. Out of that sense of now, I've got to do something, the next several days are about, all right, if I've got to do something, what is it and how do I do it? So over these first four days of Lent, then we continue with the importance of self-denial, which is the great work of Lent, the great discipline of Lent, in a simple, single word is self-denial. Fasting is an element of self-denial. And why? What gets us in trouble is self-assertion. What gets us in trouble is self-seeking. What gets us off course is self-indulgence. The more we do those things, the more we become our own greatest obstacle to living Christian life. And honestly, Satan doesn't have to do much. He just has to say, I give you permission, indulge yourself, and we do all the work for him. I give you permission, serve yourself, please yourself, seek yourself. We say that sounds like a good idea, and he doesn't have to do another thing. You know, sometimes, sometimes we give the evil one way too much credit. When the simple fact of the matter is he makes a suggestion and we do all the hard work. We do all the heavy lifting without realizing it. And unfortunately, we put all that effort into the wrong work and the wrong heavy lifting. And so Lent begins with that, self-denial, because self-assertion is the obstacle. And for the connection of Lent to the cross of Jesus, it's very important that we hear the message that the gospel gave us yesterday. Because what Jesus doesn't say is pick up your cross and follow me. That's our shorthand, our dangerous shorthand for what it is to follow Jesus. But we skip a step when we put it that way. And we skip the essential step. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, then pick up your cross, and then follow me. Without self-denial, we will never pick up the cross rightly. And so now look, why the self-denial of Lent? It is at the service of rightly knowing how to embrace the passion of Jesus, rightly knowing how to pick up the cross, because without self-denial, I will never bear the cross correctly. And we know this if we pause for a moment. You know, if we pause for a moment and we're honest about ourselves, what is our reaction, especially when the cross is unexpected? Angry, impatient frustration, isn't it? Why? Because it's getting in my way. 
because it's inconveniencing me because this is not what I expected. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I'm looking for. Notice who's in the way. It's me. What I want, what I'm ready for, what I like, I haven't denied myself. And so the cross comes and I reject it. The cross comes and even if I accept it, I'm grumbling about it even as I carry it. I can't wait to get rid of it and get something else. And so self-denial is what allows me to actually receive the cross, to pick it up and value it. Without self-denial, I simply can't do those things. And so then, you know, self-denial as expressed then in three works, prayer, fasting, and generosity, almsgiving. They're all aspects of self-denial in their own way. Fasting, quite obviously, is saying no to my bodily appetites. Not even that my bodily appetites are necessarily bad, but they're easily disordered, they easily become the center of attention, they easily pull me off course. And so denying them is at the service of also quickening my heart to a spiritual hunger, sharpening my mind to how much I want something and someone greater. Prayer, done rightly and well, is likewise an element of self-denial. Because at its essence, prayer is time and attention that I don't give to myself, but give to God. Prayer is not simply saying things to God. Prayer is not simply listening, hoping God's going to say something. It is actually making the gift of my time, making the gift of my attention, in other words, laying myself open to and for somebody else. It's a laying of me aside so that there's space in my life for this other one who is greater than me. And then that gives me the chance to hear truly what God asks of me so that I can do it because it's what allows me to follow a will that is greater and different from my own. The essence of being a disciple is to follow. The essence of following is I don't get to be the leader. Self-denial. And all of that is at the service then of opening me to share what I have with those around me who are also in need. That's what almsgiving is. I have and I may have little, but it doesn't mean I have nothing to share. And so the fasting also reminds me of the hunger that so many others know and feel. The prayer which connects me to the will of God reminds me that if I love God, I must also love those he cares about too. And that requires something concrete in their direction from me. And so again, these basic works, it's not just a matter of Lent is the time where I give something up because it's good to do that. That's true. But it's all at the service of rooting that spirit of self-denial, which is the essence of discipleship in me. If I can't say no to myself, my yes to the Lord is always going to be very limited at best. 
Then coming out of that, then we move into the first period of Lent, which is remarkable. And that's the first two weeks of Lent. Every single year, every single year without exception, and this goes back hundreds of years, the first Sunday of Lent, at Mass, we hear the Gospel reading of the movement of Jesus to the desert where he is tempted. Every year, that doesn't change. From one of the three accounts of the temptation of Jesus in the desert, we read every year on the first Sunday of Lent. There is no other option. And then the following weekend, every single year, for hundreds of years, the gospel that is read is the gospel of the transfiguration of the Lord on Mount Tabor. And if we pause at that for a moment, we likely might find ourselves bewildered a bit. Because most of us have very little difficulty seeing why we would read about the temptation of Jesus in the desert for Lent. That makes perfect sense. But then the next question is, well, why the transfiguration? And why every year? Why is that so important that for hundreds of years that has been the gospel of the second Sunday? And it's because the church has two images of Lent that are distinct but intimately related. And to truly move through Lent well and appreciate its great spiritual depth, we have to understand both of those images. The first is the obvious one. Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. In the desert where he fasted, he is tempted by the devil. He overcomes and resists those temptations. And this gives rise to the first great image of Lent. It's a spiritual image. Lent is that time of the spiritual battle against temptation in the desert. It's not a battle that we wage alone, but it is a battle we wage in union with Christ, who has already fought it and already emerged victorious. And so the issue of Lent being a period of struggle in the desert, that one we're familiar with. We grow up hearing it. And, you know, again, go back to the hymn. These 40 days of Lent, O Lord, with you we fast and pray. You know, and so we take as our model for Lent the 40 days of fasting of Jesus in the desert. And what's a desert? It's a place of dryness, a place of lack, and a place that is often perceived as empty and dangerous. You spend too much time in the desert, and you're not prepared, you're going to die. That's the blunt truth of the matter. And so this movement into the desert, it's a movement away from abundance. It's a movement away from comfort. It's a movement out of the familiar that we surround ourselves with into a space that we can't completely control. You know, and... Again, if we're honest with ourselves, there are those moments where my heart does feel like a desert. My life feels that way. Everything's going wrong. And even surrounded by my friends, I feel strangely alone, strangely isolated. 
And in the midst of that, there are those impulses that can come to me that aren't good, they're dark, they're unhealthy. And it can be a struggle to resist them. You know, we don't have to do a lot of work to make those connections. And so this is an element of Lent, but note the image. It is not that I am alone. I am in the desert with Christ. And I'm not the only one who's there. We are in the desert with Christ. Well, who else was in the desert? Israel was in the desert for 40 years, wandering in the direction of the Promised Land. There's that connection of 40 again. 40 years moving in the desert, imperfectly understanding, often struggling against being tempted to reject God's will and God's word, but somehow still stumbling forward. What a marvelous image for us. What an absolutely marvelous image for us. It is a people who has been set free by passing over the waters, but is still finding itself in the desert on its way to the promised place. Just like we are. Just like we are. Having said that, then, note also, though, how does Jesus go to the desert? He rises up from the waters of baptism in the Jordan, where he makes the waters of baptism holy and consecrated for all of us. Jesus rises up from the waters, the heavens are open, the Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a dove, and that mighty voice is heard. This is my Son, my Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And his next move is to the desert. Note the connection between the baptism and the desert. And why? In St. Matthew's Gospel and in St. Luke's Gospel, where the temptations that Jesus faced are laid out for us, there's one particular issue on which those temptations turn. One particular issue. Satan very carefully phrases those temptations. If you are the Son of God, then. Note what the real issue is. The issue is not, Jesus, you're hungry, stop fasting, I've brought a sandwich. The issue is, if you are the Son of God, you can do something about your inconvenience in this way. It's about what it is to be the Son of God. It's about what it is to belong to God. And Satan wants to distort that. Satan attacks that. We know that sometimes, too. If I'm really faithful, I deserve a break. If God really loves me, he'll understand. We do that all the time. And so we go into the desert with Jesus because we need to face again what it is to be the son or daughter of God. We need to face for ourselves and understand more fully and more deeply what it is to live as one who is beloved by God. That's the issue. That's the issue. Note, because at the end of all of this, what are we doing? We're renewing our baptismal promises. And so at the very beginning, the first Sunday of Lent, that issue of facing the reality of what happens at baptism is there. 
There's another really cool similarity with all of this. When does Satan tempt Jesus? At the end. After the fasting's done. After the 40 days have been spent. And after the 40 days have been spent, where are we? We're at the point where what do we say? Do you reject Satan? I do. And so note, we begin with Lent with this victory of Jesus that he has at the end of his time in the desert. And that's our model for what we want to be at, where we want to be at the end of Lent. To be able to say with Jesus and like Jesus in his victorious strength, I likewise reject you. I likewise embrace what it is to truly be the Son of God. And so again, there's an element of Lent which is about understanding who we really are so that we can live according to that truth. That's the first image of Lent. And now you're probably thinking, well, that's enough. That's enough. I can't, uh, 40 days is not enough to work on that. And then the church hits us with a second one. And that's the, that's the image of Lent that we have on the second Sunday. The second great image of Lent is Lent is the mountain that we climb. The transfiguration story, Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. And what happens at Jerusalem? He stretches out his arms on the cross to give his life for us. He will be rejected. He will die. And then he will rise. And so he is going to Jerusalem where he will die for us. And his disciples are going with him. And what are we doing through Lent? We are moving through Lent with Jesus to get to the holy days where the great events of his suffering, death, and resurrection are not simply presented to us, but where we mystically participate in them. We are moving with Jesus to the moment of his self-giving. This is now the other image of Lent. And so on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus goes off the road, taking a handful of his disciples with him, disciples that he has invited. That would be us too. That would be us too. There are many in the church, lamentably around the world, who are indifferent to the season. They haven't heard the invitation. And then there are those who have. Those who have heard that invitation are like Peter, John, and James, whom Jesus invites. And what does he invite them to do? Climb the mountain with me. And so there's an element of Lent, which the church has long understood to be this mystical journey up the mountain with Jesus. And again, what happens when you move up a mountain? you begin to leave behind you the ordinary concerns of daily living. It's not that they cease to exist, but one rises above them. The higher one goes on the mountain, the smaller everything begins to look, except for the new realities that you begin to see. The higher one climbs up the mountain, the further one can see beyond what is ordinarily near me. 
And so what happens is one also gains a sense of perspective, a sense of a world bigger than the one I tend to reduce it to. As one climbs the mountain, certain voices that fill my ears all the time suddenly become faint and grow silent. As one climbs the mountain, the air I breathe becomes different. It's cleaner. It's pure. Note what happens as one rises. But climbing a mountain, even if there's a trail, is not an easy thing to do. It requires work. It requires effort. And again, it is not a climb that we make alone. It is a climb we make with Jesus. Jesus doesn't stand on top of the mountain and say, come on up. He walks us up the mountain. And so note, there's the, there's the time with Jesus in the desert, and there's the climbing the mountain with Jesus. Rising above earthly concerns to heavenly concerns. And when the Lord gets to the top of the mountain, note, not before, but only once they get to the top. And so finishing the journey matters. There's no prize for halfway. Finishing the journey matters. When one climbs the mountain and reaches the top, the Lord does something. And that's the beautiful thing here. Lent is going somewhere. Where is Lent going? Easter. Lent is going toward Easter. That's the top of the mountain. Lent is the mountain the church climbs to get to the glory of Easter. And so what happens on top of the mountain? The Lord reveals his glory to them. He is transfigured, his face burns brighter than the sun. His garments become gleaming and whiter than any earthly reality can produce. The Lord shows his goodness, his greatness, his glory. And why? He gives his disciples a glimpse of the resurrection on their way to Jerusalem. He gives his disciples a glimpse of the end so that they will be strong enough to endure the darkness that comes before it. They will see him die, but before they see him die, they have seen his glory. He gives them a foretaste of the glorious life that he will win for us in rising from the dead. Note how marvelous that is. So the church has long looked at that as, and every single year, if we are rightly prepared for the celebration of Easter, we get that gift too. We still have to continue living in this world, but we get that glorious, brilliant glimpse of how good his victory is. So that strengthened by it, as we return again to everyday affairs, we go back different. But how do you get to the glimpse? You climb the mountain. How do we get to celebrate the resurrection in a way that opens us to that glory? We go through Lent. And Lent is at the service of getting our eyes and our hearts ready to meet and rejoice in that. What a tremendous understanding of what the celebration of Holy Week is. 
that great series of feast days at the end, that when we meet it with hearts that are prepared, open us up to perceive and embrace and see something of the blazing, brilliant beauty of risen glory that the Lord promises to all of us, the true glorious freedom of the children of God. If then what is attacked in the temptations of the desert is what does it mean to be the son of God? On top of the mountain, Jesus shows what it is to be the son of God, what that glorious life really is, a life without any shadow of evil. How marvelous that is then, these two great images. And if we pause right there, note the mysticism, note the spirituality that's just implied in these things. What am I doing? I am literally climbing the mountain with Christ. My self-denial is a step. My fasting, my giving something up, that's a step up the mountain. And every day that I am faithful to it, even the days where I fail, as long as I'm stumbling forward, I'm still moving up the mountain. And the issue is to proceed, to keep working the season, the acts of generosity, the extra movements of prayer, whether it's spiritual reading, whether it's extra devotions, whether it's attending mass more frequently or going to confession more regularly, whatever it is, these are all steps with Christ up the mountain. And as I'm climbing the mountain, I still don't see the glory of the top. But when I get to the top, it's waiting for me. I don't achieve it, it's given to me. It's given to me by him who is also the one who is helping me get up there so that he can give it to me. And that's the other piece. Just like I am not alone in the desert, for Christ is with me, I am not alone in my movement up the mountain because he's walking me up. He's helping me get there. And none of us climbs the mountain by himself or herself because we're moving up together. The church is climbing the mountain just like the church is in the desert. Um, and so what we're all doing individually is also what we're all doing together, which is why Lent has certain things that we do together. You know, it's, it's a common thing to hear, you know? Giving up meat on Fridays is not a big deal to me. I'm a vegetarian. You know, that's no sacrifice. It doesn't matter. Having fish on Friday doesn't matter. I love seafood. I'd, even, I'd eat it every day if I could. It doesn't matter. It may not be a sacrifice for you, but it's something we're doing together. Note the value there. The real value is that there are a couple things during Lent that we do together. For some of us, it's going to be easy. For others, it's going to be pretty hard. What matters is we're doing something together, however minimal. And then all of the other days, you know, it's like, well, giving up, giving, I'm a vegetarian, I don't have to worry about that no meat thing. Right, but on all the other days, you can find something else that is going to cost you to give up. Note, we do a few simple things together because we are in this together. And then each of us looks to do those other things that are perhaps more demanding 
personally because I know I also have to do something on my own, something by myself. And that also contributes to our collective movement up the mountain. Because the more generous in those things that each of us is, the more effective the movement of all of us becomes. Then, moving out of the first two weeks of Lent, we come to the middle period of Lent, Sundays 3, 4, and 5, which, depending on the year, have different focal points. But they are all Sundays where we look at some particular aspect of who Jesus is for us. For example, in year A, we read the long sections from St. Ma- John's Gospel that are used to accompany those who are preparing for the Easter sacraments. And we see Jesus as the one who gives us the water of life. We see Jesus as the one who is the light of the world. And we see Jesus in raising Lazarus from the dead as the one who is the resurrection and the life. This year, as we move through our readings, we will likewise see elements of Jesus as the one who is given for the salvation of the world. Jesus as the grain of wheat that must fall to the ground and die. Jesus as that one who must be lifted up, that a fallen world can see salvation in him. And so then, so after we engage the mountain, we turn directly to the face of Jesus. And why? What is it the disciples see on top of the mountain? The face of Jesus. Luminous, glowing, gleaming. And so here we talk about something very important. One of the ancient devotional expressions for the period of Lent comes from the back part of St. John's Gospel. And it's at that moment, Jesus has been scourged. Jesus has been crowned with thorns. A purple cloth like a cloak has been thrown over his shoulders. He has been laughed at. He has been rejected. He has been mocked. And Pilate brings him out in front of the people, and he says, Behold the man. Ecce homo. Ecce homo is the great word of this middle part of Lent. Ecce homo. Behold him. Take a look at him. Pilate says it mockingly. Look at him. He's nothing. He's nobody. Look at him. And looking at him, beginning with the priests and the Pharisees and continuing through the people, the cry is one of rejection. Crucify him. And yet the Christian is called to look at him, to look at that suffering face and see that that is the face that will be gloriously triumphant in his resurrection. That is the face that shows us how much God loves us because he is the son who has been given for our salvation. To look at him and see that he is the servant by whose wounds we are healed. And so in that middle part of Lent, the church now begins to turn to look at Jesus. Not to look at a stranger, but to look at a friend that we need to know better. 
It's not that we know nothing about Jesus, but if we've already moved through the first couple weeks, there should be an opening in us that allows us to see a bit more clearly, that allows us to perceive a bit more deeply who he is. So one of the reasons here in front of our Ambo, we have a mini Eche Homo, this bust of the Lord after he's been taken down from the cross. I encourage you to come up closer and have a closer look at it when you get a chance. The crown of thorns is not on his head, but the marks of the thorns are there. And again, it's to look at him. This is where the stations of the cross come in during Lent. Why? We look at the one in how he suffers for us so that we can see not simply the truth of our own sinfulness, but also see the greatness of how much he loves us. As St. Louis de Montfort so powerfully says, the single greatest way to grow in love of Christ is to contemplate how much he suffered for you. Because then you will contemplate the greatness and the sheer magnitude of his love for you. You know, and so as we move through Lent and we begin engaging these other devotional expressions, their purpose and their meaning become clear to us. And all of that sets us sets the table for the back part of Lent, which beginning on the fifth Sunday and running into Holy Week is the period the church has long referred to as Passion Tide, the time of the cross. And so there's a turn that we take on the back part of Lent. And so Lent is not simply all about the cross, as we've just noted. It's that element of being in the desert with Christ. There's that element of climbing the mountain with Christ. There's that element of, in the light of everything he's done for us, gazing upon his face and seeing who he truly is. So that now when we turn more explicitly and more fully to the mystery of the cross, we know something more about the one who is there. We know something more about the one with whom we are walking. And we are ready to embrace that mystery. And so it is here in the United States on the fifth Sunday of Lent. That is the date where if images are going to be covered in the church, that's when we do it. Um, And so at that moment when we turn toward the mystery of the cross, which is unveiled on Good Friday. So again, note. The crucifix is veiled on the fifth Sunday of Lent, and it stays veiled until the veil is pulled off on Good Friday in light of the great event of the Lord dying for us. After the cross is unveiled, all of the other things become unveiled. But we're not at Holy Week yet. That's another conference. But then the turning, the turning to the cross begins in the fifth week of Lent. So the readings take on a different sharpness as they prepare us for Holy Week. Moving into Holy Week, which begins with Palm Sunday of the Lord's Passion. Again, note the symbolism. That's still part of Lent. But what do we do? We receive our palms, we move in procession, and we enter the church which is the location of the mysteries that save us. 
just as the Lord, accompanied by a procession with palms, entered Jerusalem, where the saving mysteries would first be celebrated in his dying and his rising for us. You know, what a powerful conjunction of things. Lent ends during Holy Week. The last day of the last, okay, Lent ends at sunset on Holy Thursday. So Holy Thursday is one of those days that straddles two times of the year. Holy Thursday in the first part is the last day of Lent. It is the one day of Lent that doesn't have Mass, unless in the diocese the bishop celebrates his Chrism Mass on the morning of Holy Thursday. If not, there is no daily Mass. There is no morning Mass. There is no afternoon Mass on Holy Thursday. There is no Mass at all until the next part of the year begins, which is the High Holy Days of the Paschal Triduum which begins with the evening Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday. Um, and so Lent, beginning with Ash Wednesday, takes us all the way through Palm Sunday to just before the beginning of Mass on Holy Thursday night. And then the high point of the liturgical year begins. And the great three days that we celebrate, the Paschal Triduum, begins with the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday night. It includes Good Friday, which is that day where Mass is not celebrated. The service of the Passion of the Lord is not a Mass. And so there is no Mass celebrated on Good Friday. Rather, that's the day where we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that saves us. Then we move into Holy Saturday. During the day, once again, there is no Mass. Not in the morning, not in the afternoon. Mass is forbidden until darkness falls. Typically here, the time is 8 o'clock. And in the darkness of Holy Saturday night, the great vigil of the resurrection of the Lord is celebrated, the Easter vigil. That is the privileged time at which adults coming to the faith are received fully by means of the Easter sacraments. Many people believe that the Triduum, the Paschal Triduum, culminates and concludes with the Easter vigil. That is not true. It concludes on Easter Sunday night. And so that cluster of days from the evening of Holy Thursday through the end of the day on Easter Sunday is the highest and holiest point of the year for us. And it is on those days, that's the top of the mountain. So the summit of the mountain is, though, is the celebration of the saving mysteries over those days. And that's what we're preparing for. Lent is at the service of getting us ready to celebrate that Mass of the Lord's Supper in a way that is deeper than we customarily 
have celebrated Mass before. Lent is at the service of our gathering around the victorious cross of the Lord on Good Friday and being ready to fully embrace its meaning. Lent is at the service of our renewing the depth of our Christian faith at the night of the Easter Vigil with the light of the candles and stepping forward into the day of risen glory on Easter Sunday. Note how marvelous that is. Note how marvelous that is. So when we get to the top of the mountaintop, the church is also saying the glimpse of the glory of Christ is not brief. Just like the climbing took six weeks, so that moment of gazing upon the glory of Christ isn't just a single event of a moment. It's a gazing that takes place over three days from Holy Thursday night to Easter Sunday night, the gazing upon, the perceiving, and the being renewed and strengthened by the full glory of the mystery and the person that saves us. That is the mountaintop. Or just as well, it is that moment of standing with Christ at the end of the time of the desert, where one is about to leave the desert and step out into the world that isn't a desert. And what happens right before that? The rejection of Satan so that life can be lived in the true freedom of the children of God. That moment of turning away from Satan with decision, that moment of embracing the full freedom of the gospel takes place over three days, over three days. And what a marvelous reality that is. And what happens on the other side of Easter Sunday? Seven weeks. Seven weeks. Lent is six weeks long. Easter is seven. The time in the desert is six weeks. The time in the promised land is seven. Note the weight. As long as the preparation and the penance is, even longer is the period of rejoicing. And that's the real struggle. It's a lot easier to do penance for six weeks than it is to rejoice for seven. As much as we say, I'm all about the happiness, let's be blunt. Next to nobody can maintain happiness for more than a couple days, let alone seven straight weeks. And so note what else is going on. We recognize that we are so weak and fallen and inconstant that our experience of joy is most marked by the fact that it is easily lost and hard to find. Sorrow is easy. Struggle is easy compared to maintaining joy. And so know what the hidden fruit of Lent is? To make me strong enough to step into the long period of rejoicing with a chance to sustain it. The task on the other side of Lent 
is then to navigate those seven weeks of rejoicing in the victory of the Lord in a way where something of that peace, something of that goodness, something of that glory, something of that joyfulness begins to find a permanence within us. That doesn't mean that we're going to be able to master all of it, but we're getting prepared for that. It's not just that we're prepared for Easter Sunday. It's we're preparing for Easter tide, the whole 50-day period that concludes with Pentecost. And that the better I do with Lent, the better positioned I am to really understand what waits for me there. And you know, what a great gift that is. And what an important reminder of just how fragile this happiness we claim we want really can be. And we also recognize then that unless the Lord help me, I will never be truly happy. Unless the Lord help me, happiness will always be a passing thing. But we're moving toward an eternal joy. And so the Easter season on the other side of Lent is a bit of a foretaste of what eternal joy is like. Our fragile, fallen world is incapable of containing such joy. You know, we are those earthen vessels too weak to contain that full treasure and yet mysteriously gifted with it. Um, and so we move then into this longer period after the desert in the hope that something of its abiding permanence will root itself within us. What a great gift that is, because again, the end, what's on the backside, is what determines everything that's on the front side. But then, the quality of how we engage that front side is what in no small measure determines how well we're going to be able to enter the backside, how well we'll be able to meet the goal, embrace the goal, and live the goal. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.